Welcome to CoinGeek Conversations, and my guest this week is Katie Cook, the author of The Psychology of Silicon Valley. So, welcome, Katie. Thank you so much, Charles. It's nice to be here. You're listening to CoinGeek Conversations with Charles Miller. Can we just start by a little bit about your background? Because you trained in psychology, first more on in individual psychology, and then you've moved, in order to understand the tech business, into what I think we call social psychology. Is that right? Yeah. I started out not really knowing what I wanted to do exactly. I knew I loved um, people's stories. I knew I loved narratives, but I didn't know exactly kind of where that would take me. So I started out uh, as a counselor for a little bit. I worked in bereavement counseling and then um, transitioned back to kind of looking at modern culture and modern culture studies and then a bit of psychoanalysis and um, yeah, social psychology eventually. And this was as an academic? Correct. Yeah. So I ended up, my, my PhD was on the psychology of progress. Um, so I'm really interested in kind of how we get from, um, as a big collective, as a group from kind of a point A to a point B, whatever that may be, where hopefully the point B is a little bit healthier, whether you're thinking in terms of climate change or, um, you know, changing financial kind of institutions and norms or values or, or those kinds of things. Well, th this is going to be very interesting because within the Bitcoin SV community at the moment, there is this great vision of how we're going to get from a group of, a fairly small group of people, entrepreneurs with, with a lot of great ideas, into really having an impact uh, in the world of finance and trading and, you know, even giving the internet a, a run for its money, perhaps. It, it deserves it. Something has to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's just start, perhaps, with a, a, a very strong point that comes through in your book which I, I was interested in, which is that there's a mismatch, you say, between people's generally rather over-positive views about Silicon Valley and, and the tech giants and what they're really like. Can you, can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, it's a... It's a... When I, when I talk about Silicon Valley, I tend to, as a social psychologist or as a social scientist, you tend to kind of generalize. It kind of comes with the territory, and it's not, it's not always the most comfortable kind of general like thing to do is to make generalizations. But as individuals, these people are, are lovely. I interviewed 200-plus people for my book. Every one of them was, you know, a nice person, a good person. No one I met was evil. But I guess when it comes more to the corporations themselves, right, there's this, there's been this shift, especially I think over the last kind of 10, 10, 12 years or so to away from the original kind of values on which the tech industry was founded, the kind of counterculture that informed a lot of its original values to this more kind of hyper-capitalist system, this kind of extracted advertising based um, world that resembles maybe Wall Street if you looked at the culture of Wall Street 20 years ago or still today but you make some quite entertaining points about the sort of lack of diversity in in Silicon Valley and I particularly enjoyed your um, mentioning of some of these sort of so-called problems that Silicon Valley is solving like the the juicero uh, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell us about that. Um, I, oh, oh gosh, I saw the video once and it just made me, I, my mouth just dropped open. It's, um, 
It is a machine that squeezes juice out of, it's connected to an app, I believe, maybe, and it squeezes the juice out of a bag. Um, and it wasn't working for a lot of people, and it cost like hundreds of dollars. And then they, some lady realized you could just squeeze it with your hands, and it worked in exactly the same way. And so there's this kind of, you know, fable of like over over designing and kind of designing for, for no purpose rather than kind of meeting real needs. A lot of these um, entrepreneurs, they talk about pain points, but I think um, in the real world, this is not much of a pain having to squeeze uh, an orange. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, where for me, like the emotional intelligence piece came in because the empathy part, um, I heard, oh gosh, who was it? Um, Alex Stamos gave like a keynote at Black Hat a few years ago about empathy or the lack of empathy um, in tech. And it really resonated. And it just, it's so clear to me that if you, you know, don't understand the problems that real people are facing, you're not going to design technology that meets the needs of society, right? And if you don't have the self-awareness to, um, to reflect on what you're doing and why you're doing it and why you're building what you are, you're, you're not going to, you know, do the most good that you could. And these are brilliant people and they have the capacity to do so much good. Um, so I'm really hopeful that, you know, building emotional intelligence will hopefully help. Um, just going back to what I mentioned at the beginning, which is that on the whole, the public has a reasonably positive view of Silicon Valley, perhaps more than, than you do. And you talk in the book about how the image of the sort of brilliant entrepreneur is pretty was pretty self-consciously created by some PR people. Yeah, it's interesting. It, it really is like a when you look at it a little bit more closely, there's a lot of kind of marketing and, and PR um, tricks, I think, that have gone into formulating this identity of the Valley because I don't think left to their own devices, um, founders and engineers might have kind of bothered to you know, catalyze that identity for themselves, but you get money flowing in, you get people who are aware that they can profit off of this, this industry. And they realize that it needs to be kind of safeguarded in certain ways. And part of that is creating a narrative around, you know, who these people are, what are they doing? Oh, we're saving the world. We're connecting people. We're making it a better place. We're solving all the most important problems. And, and sometimes, sometimes that's true. You know, some, there's some great tech companies who do great things, but some of the big ones I think that we're kind of most familiar with have kind of gone off the rails, as you said earlier. But and um, we're not really in in your discussions can only talking about Silicon Valley as a place. You, you you've got a great quote from Reid Hoffman of LinkedIn to say that uh, who says that Silicon Valley is a mindset, not a location. So this is broader than just that little area south of San Francisco, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I think in the same way that American values tend to kind of spread, uh, I think especially to the UK. I lived in the, the UK for a year when I was younger and then eight years um, in my 20s and 30s. And you do see kind of the the ideas and the trends and some of the stuff kind of make their way across the pond and then around the world. And I think it's it's the same with the tech industry because it is such a, you know, important, influential, profitable industry that is you know everywhere it's not just silicon valley obviously and those values do do tend to kind of spread although they they mix with kind of local social values which i found really interesting so i made a point to talk to people 
in as many different countries as I could to kind of feel out the differences and make sure I was making um, kind of real, solid um, observations about what the distinction was about the psychology of that, um, that kind of place and that mindset in Northern California that then disperses. Right. It really is the, the source of this culture, I guess, even though it's widely distributed. Every country wants to have its own Silicon Valley. And... Yeah, and I wish they didn't. Um, I wish they wanted to do something a bit better than that, um, at least kind of from, a, from an ethical point of view or a, a values point of view. In, in the world of Bitcoin SV, which, which I'm more familiar with, we've got uh, entrepreneurs all around the world trying to build apps that will encourage use of the Bitcoin SV blockchain and it's a little bit similar, I would imagine, to the early days of the internet where people were finding dot-com you know, uh, ideas that would bring people to the internet. Having looked at how Silicon Valley has, has developed, do you have any sort of advice about how this ecosystem should best be brought to life, really? Gotcha. Yes, that, that's an awesome question. Um, yeah, so I think one of the things that wasn't super clear, I think, when, um, when the industry kind of started booming and when money started flowing into it um, was a kind of popular acceptance of the values that were associated with it. So I think being really clear about values, whether that's, you know, in a relationship, that's super important, right? Or in a classroom, if you're teaching kids or in a, a business or, or in an, an entire industry. So I think if there's kind of a, I don't know, collective agreement, um, guidelines, if, if that's something that is, you know, possible to come up with anything around, values where people are actually kind of held accountable and, and made to hold each other accountable. Because when I think money especially starts flowing in, when power comes, and I mentioned the power paradox in my book a couple times because I think it's so important. When people gain power, your original values can go out the window so easily. And I think I'm a pretty you know, values, I think I'm pretty ethical, but, you know, God knows what would happen if I, you know, had a windfall of whatever to my business. Like, I would like to think I would stay grounded, but, but who knows, right? Like I, you need someone to hold you accountable. And I think you need to be, you need to be reminded of why you started things in the first place. Uh, one idea that I have that I don't know whether this is realistic or not, but it, it does seem that everybody's interests are in getting people sort of onto the system. And therefore, there is a spirit of cooperation because if one entrepreneur does well, that creates um, uh, people who can use any other app because they're already uh, using the blockchain and they have, they have access to it. And also you have the advantage of having witnessed the last 20 years and kind of the, you know, the pitfalls of not behaving in a way that's, you know, legally responsible, ethically kind of dubious. I think you have a good model for kind of how, how not to act too, right, which is just as important. No one wants to kind of, you know, be on the cover of Time magazine looking like a battered, like battered man like Mark Zuckerberg. Well, I mean, the other thing that I'm perhaps is more of a question, really, is you talk in the book about 
um, the kind of people who do well in Silicon Valley, they tend to be not particularly good at social skills and various other sort of personal qualities that you uh, go into. And obviously, the people working in, in this area of Bitcoin are also developers. Um, and perhaps if there is a, a characteristic type, then they, they may share some of that. Is it your view that those personal qualities that you pick up as shortfall, shortcomings in Silicon Valley are inherent to the nature of the work? Or is this just a... Um, a sort of offshoot of the, the lack of diversity that you also highlight? I think it's that's a really good question. I'm not sure what it is. I think it's probably a blend of a few things. It's probably not an either or. I think the kind of you know mind that's maybe best at more, more technical work um, might not, and this is shown in some of the research, if you're super analytical, if you're really, really good kind of with that kind of part of your brain, it's likely that you aren't probably as strong in other areas, right? Like in the same way, I'm not super technological because, you know, the parts of my brain associated with like empathy and communication and, and those things work pretty well, um, are pretty dialed up, but my technical skills are, are rubbish, right? So we can't do everything well. And it's not like one is better than the other. I think you just need to kind of have a respect for, for both, right? And a blend of both. And so you can, you can definitely teach those skills, right? If people, for whatever reason, want them or don't have them or think it would be advantageous for their for their organizations to, to learn more emotional intelligence, or you can bring people in who, you know, might um, be able to kind of steer the company in an ethically or emotionally intelligent kind of direction or socially responsible way. So, yeah, I think it's, if you can blend those types of thinking um, and have respect for everyone, I think that's a really good place to start. Part of the problem that you highlight is, is probably to do with when a small business becomes a huge business and there are shareholders who are interested in what kind of dividends they're going to get and how much the price is going to go up. There's a whole new set of pressures in addition to whatever the founder might have brought to the idea in the first place. And that may just be inevitable, I think. Yeah, I think that push for growth um, can be really damaging depending on kind of who's at the helm and, and who's driving it and what the what the pressures are um, and also what the product is, right? Like if, if people grow without testing properly um, and put out product that or services that, you know, could be harmful, dangerous, damaging, hurt people, kill people, injure people, emotionally harm people, then, you know, it's, it's really as growth at any cost. And, and I think, yeah, it's a, it's kind of a function of this hyper-capitalist economy again, I think, which Americans are starting to look at, I think, but historically really haven't. One of the things that is very much discussed uh, around Bitcoin SV is the idea that when the BSV ecosystem is fully developed, then we will be able to avoid the advertising model. People won't have to provide personal data to be sold or they won't have to be exposed to advertising. Yeah. But you know, there will possibly be a small payment instead of that. Uh, sometimes you pay, sometimes you might get paid. How 
addicted do you think users are to the idea that they never pay for anything and they just put up with their data being used and having to watch advertising instead? I really like the idea of this just came to me. I don't know if this is possible even or not, because my, again, my knowledge of, of Bitcoin SV is very rudimentary, but um, some kind of donation kind of model might be really cool where you could say, you know, do you want, you're going to read this article or you're going to buy this product or, or whatever the micropayment is. Do you want to allow someone else, you know, who is, you know, financially less able to, to also read this article? Do you want this to be available to like a classroom or a kid in the same way, you know, at the, at the checkout, do you want to give a dollar at the pet store to, pets in need or whatever. So I really like the idea of kind of making it even more communal and, and helping people when you can, because there's a lot of people who, you know, can spare a dollar or 50 cents. And it might be kind of a really neat kind of philanthropic um, addition to, to that kind of model. Do you, how do you think that the current situation has changed people's views of Silicon Valley and the, and the tech giants? Because obviously, they they went from a sort of honeymoon period to the problems that you describe in the book, um, privacy, invasion, and, and that sort of thing. Um, now that we are potentially a bit more reliant on technology than we were, I mean, you and I are talking over Skype here, and a lot of people are using these kind of things a lot more. How has that changed the, the sort of uh, power play in in relation to these companies, do you think? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like the last few weeks or a couple of months now, gosh, it's really flying by. Um, yeah, it's been really technologically heavy, I think, for everyone who has access to technology. And also, I think they've had kind of a quiet period, aside from that, um, the kind of Zoom debacle with the with the privacy and the, you know. Um, but they, they haven't had a lot of bad PR, I would say, in the past few months, which is really interesting compared to the well, last few years. There was, there was a bit of a problem when Apple and Google were trying to um, build this tracing app. Yeah. And, and yeah. then I, what we thought was very interesting was that, that the government was saying, well, this is no use to us because you're being too protective of people's privacy. <laughs> so that really, you know, it's quite hard to get your head around that one in the context yeah. of everything that had gone before. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think they're finally, government finally seems to be, you know, getting it a little bit, I think. Like, they're finally understanding that these these companies have a lot of power and a lot of access to data. And, yeah, I don't, I don't know to answer your question. I, you know, we find ourselves in a really interesting place. I think the, the fact that we're spending so much time on, on technology makes a lot of people cognizant of the fact that they would rather spend time with people in, in real life and would rather, you know, go out to a restaurant or have an in-person conversation. You don't, it doesn't feel kind of emotionally good to be in front of a screen as much as we are right now, I think. And I think a lot of people are struggling, um, especially if you're not used to it, especially if you're an extrovert, especially if you're not, you know, if you live alone, it, there's all sorts of things that can make it a lot more difficult for people. And, you know, technology is great. And I get to see my friends all over the world because of it. But I would still much rather be in a room with them. And I think that's what the last few months have taught me is that I, I value just people so much more than I do technology. On the other hand, whilst that I'm sure most people would agree with that, you don't need to 
also think, so I don't like the tech companies as a result of that. In fact, they're at least making us uh, able to, to stay in touch to some extent. And I think maybe we feel more positive towards them after this because of that. Yeah, potentially, for sure. And I think the fact that I always look at it like kind of a pendulum. Um, you know, we had a really big swing towards, you know, a lack of regulation and um, kind of, I think a lot of companies getting away with murder in some cases. And then we seem to be swinging back the other direction. There's a lot more regulation. There's a lot more, you know, oversight coming, laws coming. Um, and it just, they seem to be kind of getting it that they actually do need to, you know, step up, take responsibility, um, kind of have the values that it sounds like your community, you know, is invested in taking care of people, building real communities and you know, actual good, actual social good. Now, at the end of your book, uh, this is one place where I sort of diverged from you, I think. You were sort of saying, um, all is not lost. Um, we, can, we can create a better culture here. And it starts with people closing their Facebook accounts and stuff like that. And I just thought, well, is that realistic? You know, the, the whole network effect that Facebook has, it has this un, unparalleled access to all the people that everyone knows. And in the past, when they've had some problems, there've been sort of Facebook boycotts, but after a month or two, it's all over and everyone's back using it again. Yeah. Yeah, I um, I don't think, I mean, I have a Facebook account. I don't think Facebook is, is evil. I don't think anyone needs to kind of get off it or be on it. I don't really, I don't have too much of an opinion on kind of how people spend their time. But um, I think it's more the values that drive those companies kind of need to change before they should be entrusted with our data, with our time, with, you know, lots and lots of advertising dollars. So essentially our money. Um, I don't think a lot of companies are very deserving of what we have given them in terms of trust. Is that a responsibility of government to, to make that happen? Do you think? Yeah, I think partly, I think it's a, it's a combination, right? So employee kind of pressure, which you've seen now, um, consumer pressure, which you've maybe seen less of, but like you said, with the ban Facebook and the, the kind of viral kind of outrages, you do get a bit of it. And then I think mostly government regulation will be the thing that actually changes it. And some companies will do it themselves. You know, there's some great companies out there that have really sound values that people love to work at that don't kind of follow the model that I kind of talk about um, being predominant in Silicon Valley, both in terms of emotional intelligence, in terms of ethics, in terms of, you know, workers' rights and treatment. So there are lots of exceptions to, to the rule, for sure. Not everyone's a Facebook. You, you give a pretty damning um, account of the effect on an individual of being too much plugged into social media in particular in terms of values. And I was wondering really whether that is just today's version of people complaining about consumerism during the, the great days of commercial television where we all needed a new car and a new fridge and everything like that. And probably people were complaining about the, the values during that time in a different way. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're quite right. So, um, it's, there's a lot of kind of psychological terms to, that, that address that idea, but it's essentially, looking for things outside yourself to, you know, to make yourself whole or to make yourself feel good or to, you know, feel some, to feel something that doesn't feel filled. 
And so it used to be, or it still is to, to a lot of people, but um, to things like material things, new refrigerators, washing machines, or clothes, or bags, or shoes, um, you know, now it can be attention or likes and virality of something, you know, you do has a, a huge uptake that can, you know, make you feel really good and give you the hugest dopamine hit for, for five minutes. And then you're back to the original kind of feeling and state that you had. So I think being unclear about kind of what drives true happiness and true fulfillment, I think you're right. It's just an extension of, of not having maybe, um, a super honest or, you know, socially, um, aware conversation about that about what actually makes us whole as people and what makes us feel good and what makes our lives worth living and, you know, what makes us get up at the, um, in the morning and smile and go to bed at night and be happy and feel like we've done a good job. And, you know, having, a, you know, a, a big TikTok video go viral isn't going to do that for you right. at the end of the day. Right? Right. And, and that I think is a conversation that we probably need to have about values, both as a society, in addition to the values that, of these companies that are kind of driving the industry. So that's kind of, I think, where most of my work kind of um, comes from and is interested in. Well, Katie, thank you so much for talking to me. And I hope that this very unique period perhaps will provide a, a sort of catalyst for some of the changes that you're advocating. I really hope so too. And I really hope it, it drives more interest in, in Bitcoin SV as well. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thanks. I trust. Many thanks to Katie Cook. And if you'd like to read Katie's book, which I recommend, please check the show notes to this podcast, where there's a link to either a printed version you can buy or a free electronic version, which can be read on Kindle or other readers. Thanks for listening, and please join me, Charles Miller, again next week for another CoinGeek Conversation.